This is Anya, and we are back. Today we are talking with G.A. Sung-Yu, who works at the Human Rights Foundation as program manager of Flash Drives for Freedom. This is an initiative that smuggles flash drives into North Korea to breach the regime's oppressive censorship and brainwashing, for lack of a better word. I know that she can do a much better job than I can in explaining this campaign, so let's get into it. Thank you so much, GA, for coming to speak with us today. We are thrilled to get to talk to you about your project. If you could just start off by giving us a sense of what uh, your organization does, what the mission is, how it operates. Yeah, so the Human Rights Foundation is a nonprofit based in New York, and I work on a program that's called Flash Drives for Freedom. Flash Drives for Freedom was launched in 2016 before I joined the team as a full-time member in 2018. And the goal of the program is to bring information into North Korea, which is one of the most censored and closed societies in the world. I think it ranks always in the bottom three with Turkmenistan and Eritrea. And yeah, so it's been running for five years and we're celebrating that now. Fantastic. And so Flash Drives for Freedom, what is the kind of uh, general operational structure within that organization? How do you disseminate information into North Korea? What information is that? Uh, I'm assuming that that's somewhat of a harrowing process. <laughs> yes, so the most important part to emphasize is that we at the Human Rights Foundation are not involved in the selection of the content that goes into North Korea. We leave that up to North Korean defector activists who are now, who have founded their own organizations and they're working and they've been working before we started this project on bringing information to their own people because they know that the lack of information is something that really drastically changes the perspectives on like millions of North Koreans living there. And our role is basically we saw this need for um, gathering USBs and SD cards and micro SD cards and giving them to North Korean defector organizations who would otherwise have to buy them at market prices. And most of us have USB drives that we don't use anymore. And we've just, I don't know, we got one from our university, from our job, from a conference. So it's also kind of uh, a sense of recycling. But it also is, um, oh, it has a secondary tool um, with, of letting outside people know about what's going on inside North Korea, because it's not very common that people will know. Yeah, absolutely. That's so true that, that North Korea is this kind of, shrouded concept for many of us. Can you give us a sense maybe of how the kind of political landscape looks in North Korea at the moment, maybe so social and cultural as well? Um, what is the, you know, what prompts the need for these flash drives and for this kind of information campaign? Yeah, so, I mean, there's a long version to that story, but I'll cut it short because we only have so much time. Basically, North Korea has been running under a dynasty form of dictatorship. So now we're in the third generation. So we start with Kim Il-sung and then Kim Jong-il. Now we're at Kim Jong-un, who is the youngest leader. And the political, well, it's classified as a fully authoritarian regime by Freedom House. It ranks on the bottom of all journalistic freedoms, individual freedoms, civil liberties. There is no political party except for the central party. And the structure of that is also controlled by well, by Kim Jong-un himself. So there is really like no kind of freedom that you can imagine. And one very interesting thing that we've heard from defectors is that, or when they 
left North Korea, they learned that, oh, actually, we have the freedom to love other people that are not Kim Jong-un or Kim Il-sung or Kim Jong-il because we thought love is the feeling you can only have towards those people. So they would also not even say that to their family or to their spouses. And we heard from another defector that they don't have the right to be unemployed. So it's this Soviet <laughs> era kind of idea that everybody needs to have a job, but that job isn't necessarily something that's very useful. Hmm. I'm, I'm getting that the purpose of the uh, information campaign through the, the flash drives is kind of to sensitize perhaps the North Koreans to what they're conditioned to believe. So the idea is to offer them alternative options of information without forcing them because replacing a forced ideology with another one is obviously also a form of authoritarianism that we don't support. And so, for example, the examples of content that go into it are, well, like, for example, there's a Korean language version of Wikipedia, but a lot of it is um, pop culture, so South Korean dramas that are also now very popular, and uh, also documentaries. For example, documentaries about protests around the world in the US, like in South Korea, at the Arab Spring, all those kinds of events that show them, well, those things are possible elsewhere, so maybe you should have a think about that. Um, and also to provide them with, yeah, like music or. Yeah, a lot of different kinds of uh, entertainment that will also serve to show them the outside world. Seeing things like South Koreans, for example, handheld footage of South Koreans going to public library that has a lot of books that are not just about the Kim family, that can be really shocking and really eye-opening to somebody who's lived in a countryside village in North Korea. Yeah, wow. Uh, going back to the actual operation the operational structure of the uh, the campaign. Can you give us a sense of how these flash drives are, are used on the ground? Or, and, and are they smuggled? Is there a particular way that they're smuggled in? Um, how do they reach people? Yeah, so if I give you the kind of process in like a linear form, so we would receive, we would receive donations in The Hague or in New York in two of our collection points. And then we collect them and sort them according to size and see if they're still working. And then we'll send them to our organization, partner organizations that are based in South Korea that are owned by North Korean defectors. And they will work with um, Chinese counterparts and North Korean counterparts who will work to bring those, well, technically they're contraband items across the border. And that can be done either by the land route, so because... North Korea shares a very long uh, border with China or on water because there's also ships that go through the country. And there are several methods. We've also used, um, we had a partner organization that used drones before, but that didn't go very well with uh, Chinese authorities. But um, for security reasons, I cannot disclose specifically how that's done, but there are different people working on different methods. And the idea is we just litter them around the country and then people just pick them up if they want to. So the interesting thing is that you can trade USB devices, but you cannot trade content. So there are also technologies to go about go around this to for when you um, insert an SD card, an SD card into your computer, it will show up as empty. But then when you install a specific program, you could revert it and then recall all the content that was uploaded on it before. Mm. 
And are North Korean officials aware of this campaign? Uh, I'm, Kim Jong-un is a, is a retaliatory figure. Um, I'm wondering if, yeah, are they, are they aware of this? Are they really actively trying to stop uh, this dissemination? Or is this very like clandestine? Yeah, so yes to both of those things. Uh, we've had quite a few... We have had like two shout-outs from the North Korean regime. So I think the last one was in 2020, and they sent a note to the official cabinet newspaper saying there's a program called Flash Drives for Freedom that's trying to instill imperialist mindsets into our citizens, and they will fail because our ideology is so superior. Mm. Do you have a, any kind of way to assess how effective uh, this program is or how many people you have reached? So it's a little bit hard to track what happens to all of those devices once they get into the country because people have asked us, well, is there a way that you can install a program that tracks how many times it's been opened? And I think those things are possible, but it would also put the people at risk of them being traced back if one of them gets caught. And I think um, along with sending information, it's also important for us to keep the people safe. We've estimated um, that... On average, because North Korea is such a close economy, a lot of goods are shared among people, especially information and entertainment content, because it's also very expensive. And the average North Korean worker has something like 70 US dollar cents a month as salary. So even if we send in a USB drive that would cost $15 in the US, it means a lot for those people who don't have that kind of income. I mean, they're living below the minimum wage as defined by many international organizations. So then about 10 people are estimated to share one drive or one CD or one SD card. And as of, I think, November, we sent in a hundred, about 110,000 devices. So then probably over a million people have seen content in those devices in one way or another. Are, are you worried at all that citizens are uh, maybe inclined not to believe what they're seeing or kind of take it to be propaganda given that they are existing in such a kind of deeply uh, constructed epistemic bubble? As far as, far as I know, when you are in an epistemic bubble, um, it's easier to kind of remove yourself from that from that context if you make a connection with a trusted peer or like a friend. Whereas I know that flash drives are very, you know, of course, impersonal in terms of information dissemination. And yeah, you're right. So you can feel very in very impersonal. But if people are watching those contents devices together, then it creates trust building between those people. So often we hear news from the North Korean news or from sources inside North Korea that there was a group there was a group of friends who were watching this on their television on their phone and they were caught I mean that's very unfortunate but usually people aren't watching those things by themselves because they want to share those content and it is very popular because everybody wants to be entertained and if you see North Korean comics or I don't know um, soap operas they are extremely boring because they will only talk about the greatness of their own ideology and there is no for example you don't have rom-coms I mean, i'm not a big fan of rom-coms personally but it's right. a very popular <laughs> genre and it doesn't exist in north korea because you're not allowed to entertain the thought of loving people that are not kim jong-un or kim il-sung yeah 
Wow, that is so bizarre, yeah. In terms of people's access to technology, is that something that is very widespread? I mean, you were talking about how citizens are very, very low income. Um, do Does everybody have access to a device that can play or even connect to a USB, or is that just the wealthier citizens? And if so, does that kind of create maybe a power imbalance or access issue that you feel might be problematic? There are definitely discrepancies between the different groups of people and because of socioeconomic inequalities that exist in the country, because although it claims to be like a socialist paradise, there is a lot of inequality in the country because we know that, for example, Kim Jong-un, like, he likes, I don't know, cigars and cognac and Swiss cheese. <laughs> and most of the people don't have enough food, so they are starving constantly. But if we rely on statistics coming from South Korea, because South Korea receives a lot of North Korean refugees who are then given South Korean nationality and provide a social aid for them to settle down. About, I think it's between 60 to 80% of people who either have had access to a smartphone or to a television, not necessarily that they own a device themselves, but because they share it among people. So maybe there's one person in a small village who has a television and they watch it with like all of the village together. Wow. Yeah. And and having those kinds of group sessions, if for lack of a better word, is that um, I guess I'm just surprised to hear that given how sensitive the the kind of surveillance state is and, and how I'm sure people would be really trying to hide that they were partaking in such a kind of threatening activity. I'm also wondering what happens if, if people get caught. I think that's um, a very interesting subject because like most authoritarian regimes, those policies are not consistent and it just depends on the whims and the priorities of the central regime. But it's also impossible to verify whether the charges are true um, because there is no due process, there is no legal system that people can access. So, for example, um, with information dissemination for a while, I think there was more effort to crack it down and then they stop. And then right now with uh, COVID lockdown and North Korea really closing off to the rest of the country until until rest of the countries in the world, until very recently, they were cracking down information further to strengthen their internal cohesion. I'm wondering if you can give us a sense of what kind of technology and like internet interface um, citizens have in North Korea? Like, is this, I'm, I'm sure it's incredibly restricted. What, what can, besides kind of propaganda networks, uh, North Korean citizens access? So, yeah, I think the biggest difference is that there is no internet with free access to all kinds of information. And I think on television, there's three or four channels that are all propaganda channels. And you cannot access uh, outside information unless you are a high-ranking official with authorization from the central government. And that's very few people. I think in older homes, they all have radios that you cannot turn off. <laughs> really? So the, the whole day you have to listen. You can, turn, you can turn the volume down, but you cannot turn off the radio itself. I'm wondering if you can give us a bit of an insight if you if you have this information about how the content is chosen you said it was primarily um it wasn't your organization that does this it's organizations that consist of defectors so actually north korea 
North Korea's black markets function the same way all markets work, which is market demand. And North Koreans also want to see the latest movies, latest soap operas, the latest everything. But uh, I think there is a mix of focus group that are conducted with defectors who have recently left North Korea. And then they would ask them questions like, oh, what, what kind of content did you enjoy watching the most? And mostly it's entertainment because there were also attempts to send in uh, lectures about like democratic values, but that's not very entertaining <laughs> for a lot of people. <laughs> also, information-wise, it is easier to get people to watch light-hearted content and then for the question, oh, this is really entertaining. They talk about, I don't know, this couple that are dating. But I also see that all South Koreans seem to have a car. And in North Koreans, we're not allowed to own a car unless we're a high-ranking government official. So maybe in Korea, in South Korea, maybe they have more rights as citizens. The content is really selected based on its entertainment value, but it's also mixed with things like um, doc documentaries about, for example, the protests in South Korea in 2016 that ousted the president on charges of corruption. I think they also covered the protests in the US with the Women's March and the March in Washington. Um, the Arab Spring was a very big one that's also been sent in consistently. And there are also, I think there were also videos on entrepreneurship because actually North Koreans conduct a lot of small businesses in order to survive on the black market. Mm. Do you uh, have any concerns or does your program uh, have any concerns about the psychological impact of learning that everything you've grown up with is, is wrong? Yeah, we do hear from defectors that it really put them in a lot of distress because it made them question everything that they knew. And also, for example, if they're the only one who knows this inside their family, they might not want to talk about it because they don't know if their family members will turn on them or if they will disagree. So those things are not always easy to discuss. But there's also a generational shift in that younger generations that are also millennials and born in <laughs> born in the 90s are different from their parents because previous generations did benefit from the communist centralized um, distribution system where everybody would be distributed distributed amounts of rice and meat and other goods from the state but that broke down in the 90s so actually millennials in north korea have never benefited in any way from communism so they actually know that capitalism has benefited them because they rely on the black market and they're less likely to care about what the regime thinks they're also more likely to protest against the regime and we heard more and more reports that show signs of people being really unhappy with the government and being willing to speak up against it hmm wow Wow. And given that you've been talking about this kind of changing of tides, is there any kind of sense that some something is really changing? Like this will precipitate some sort of regime change in, in the somewhat near future? Or is it just so uncertain? Yeah, that's very difficult to say because I'm not a North Korean historian. I'm not a researcher. And many people have been saying over the past 50 years that North Korea was going to collapse in the next five years. And that has not yet happened. But we see consistent reports of anecdotes of hundreds of people escaping, hundreds of thousands of people escaping the country that say things are changing because younger people don't agree with the regime because 
they have not been brainwashed to that extent and they had more opportunities to question those things because they can get phones from China and they see that if they live along the Chinese border, they can smell food that's cooking across the river. Or when they go to China to trade something on the market there because, I don't know, they don't have food, they don't have snacks, or they don't have coal, they see that there's fat Chinese kids. And they're like, oh, there are no fat kids in my country. So maybe we are not the socialist paradise that we've been led to believe we are. It sounds like tech can be kind of conceptualized as a, an anti-autocracy weapon. Yeah, technology can be used, well, it can go both ways. Like um, so like we see in other authoritarian regimes, we can see it, especially in the case of China, that it's being used to surveil its people, right. being used to control its people, being used to track people down. And there are signs that North Korea is also trying to do that with its technology. Because there are tablets and smartphones that are produced in the country, but every few seconds they will take a screenshot mm. of your screen to see what you're doing wow. on your phone, to see if you're doing anything illegal, if you, to see if you're trying to access any apps that you're not supposed to, that's not authorized by the regime. Wow. But it can go both ways. So it can be used, like it is being used by so many North Koreans, to look at outside information, to contact their family, and especially to North Koreans who have family that have escaped the country, they will often get a phone to reach out to them and to get connected to them. And that's not always simple because they might need to have a Chinese broker in the middle, have a Chinese phone in the middle. Right. But it can be used in both ways. Yeah. And are there other kind of reasons for this deterioration and the kind of brainwashing process that you were... Uh, hinting at or is this just as as time passes it's harder to kind of maintain i think it is um it's my personal opinion it's not research it's also harder to maintain um, totalitarian ideologies the longer the system goes on because the younger generations will not have the same kind of dedication to that yeah. ideology as their parents or their grandparents did hmm. because no system can remain completely hermetic yeah. and exist in its own bubble forever. I mean, they've, they're trying, but it's not working because we even hear reports of high-ranking officials who escape and say, hey, you know, I went to England with my kids or I went to Denmark with my kids because I was sent as a diplomat and we saw the internet. <laughs> mm. Switching gears a little bit, can you give us a sense of your own kind of personal story and what led you to... to uh, pursue this line of work? My background is um, maybe typical or not typical, I don't know. I'm not North Korean, I don't have any ties to North Korea in my family personally, but I come from a family that's uh, a bit of an activist, so my father and my mother were activists, student activists and protesters when South Korea was a dictatorship in the 80s. And my, one of my great-grandfathers was an independence activist when we were colonized by Japan. So I think that runs in the family. But I was interested in North Korean human rights issues because I went to university, I went to high school in South Korea, and then I never met a North Korean that I know of. It's possible that they didn't say that they were North Korean because of the discrimination that they continue to face. When I was studying in Maastricht, I, I was, I mean, it's my first time living in Europe and I wanted to go attend more seminars and see what kind of interesting things I could do. 
and I think I just googled human rights conference Europe. I think that's really literally what I typed. And it came up with the Oslo Freedom Forum, which is a conference series run by the Human Rights Foundation. And the main event is held in Oslo every May. So in 2016, I went there as a student volunteer to help um, translate for a North Korean speaker. So I went there and I met North Koreans for the first time in my life. And there were going to be people who, yeah, they really changed my life. And I really saw that there were just such strong people. For example, with many North Koreans, the biggest barrier for them to communicate with the outside world is they don't speak English. So they will only be working in South Korea. But that's the country that is mostly indifferent to them. As I said, people are often discriminated for being North Korean, for, for sounding North Korean. Um, and I thought, oh, I'm actually... I used to work for a long time as a translator and interpreter, and I'm good at this, and I'm also, I can understand where they're coming from, but I also understand what is the best way um, for them to communicate their story to other people that don't speak Korean, that come from a different cultural background. And I wanted to help them really share their story and their projects and to make, like, to help them be heard more widely. Can you talk a little bit more about where you're based now and, and how you ended up where you are? I'm based in The Hague and I lived in Seoul and then I went um, to do my master's in Maastricht University in the Netherlands because I have a Dutch stepfather and also because I grew up in India when I was very young and uh, living in an international commune, which is not a religious commune, but it's more of an eco-village. And I felt that when I was doing my studies in South Korea, that it was a very patriarchal, very hierarchical society that did not really suit me as a person. So I wanted to see how things would be different in the Netherlands. And I've been here for five years, so <laughs> I'm pretty happy with things as they are. Yeah, fantastic. And working with a, a nonprofit, do you ever feel that you wish you had more resources from governments or, or you yeah. were kind of incorporated as part of foreign policy strategies more? Or do you feel like the kind of maybe isolation from the more bureaucratic side of politics is, is more effective? So the Human Rights Foundation is a little bit unique in that we don't take government grants because we want to be free from government influences. And I can really understand where that's coming from because... For example, with North Korean human rights issues, things really depend on the government that is in power, whether they are more into diplomatic relations. In that case, human rights issues will often be neglected because to discuss diplomatic relations and to discuss security issues, you need to engage with the North Korean regime. And if you bring up human rights, they will probably not want to talk about things anymore because it makes them uncomfortable and because they have no answers because the North Korean diplomats are trained to be they're very defensive. So if you bring up a topic that they don't like, they will just get defensive and they will get up and leave. They've done this at UN meetings. Mm. Yeah. Wow. So in that sense, we are financially free from government obligations. And that is also why, for example, I'm able to speak up about the South Korean government because I work for an American nonprofit and we don't receive any grants or any have any ties to the South Korean government. Right. I'm asking a very personal opinion and if you don't you know if you don't have an answer or don't maybe want to answer that's totally fine i'm just wondering if you think that given the 
horrific human rights abuses going on in North Korea, um, and a, a slew of them, should should the international community be doing more? Should we be taking more active role in addressing those human rights issues or addressing the kind of abusive authoritarianism? Uh, or or do you think that this is something that needs to come from a domestic movement? I think it's very important to have an international movement when it comes to international to human rights issues because there are, there are very few human rights that are isolated to one place or to one idea or to yeah. one situation. Because we see that there are, for example, many authoritarian regimes that share the common trait that they're a so-called communist country, but actually they're just an authoritarian country mm-hmm. that's using communism as a front ideology if we really look into them. Uh, and they need to be tackled also together because if you want to talk about human rights in North Korea, you also have to talk about human rights in China because the Chinese government repatriates North Korean refugees yeah. knowing that when they're repatriated, they're going to be tortured, women are going to be sexually assaulted, and they're going to be sent to labor camps, they might be executed. So those things are all linked together. In terms of the Chinese repatriation, is this kind of a, a blanket policy? Are they repatriating every North Korean that crosses their borders or is it just some of them? Yeah, what is their policy towards defection? Yeah, so the base policy is that North Koreans are seen as economic migrants. Therefore, mm. they do not have a legal reason to stay in the country. And that applies to every North Korean, which is why it's very dangerous for North Koreans to escape the country because the only way they can escape is through Russia or through China. Most will go through China, go to the go to Vietnam, Laos, Thailand, and then go to the South Korean embassy there. Because well, they can try going to South Korean embassy in China, but there's going to be a lot of guards protecting those areas and catching them. You mentioned earlier that that there is discrimination uh, towards North Koreans in South Korea. I'm wondering if you can speak more about how that uh, assimilation process is and how that affects the social fabric of of South Korean society? Uh, So as of the latest statistics, there's about 35,000 North Koreans in South Korea. But as soon as they arrive in the country, whether it's through an airport or through a port, they are immediately they can immediately go to the immigration officer and say, I'm a North Korean and I would like to naturalize become a South Korean citizen. And they're given that automatically because under the constitution, each country is illegally occupying the other's territory. And what North Koreans have to go through is um, a center called Hanawon. That's officially a rehabilitation center where every North Korean will learn how to adjust to South Korean society. And that can go anywhere from a few weeks to two, three months of education. Mm. And actually it serves um, several purposes. The first one is to debrief them and to make sure that they're not a North Korean spy. Wow. And to make sure that they're not a foreign national, most commonly a Chinese national, um, posing to be a North Korean to be given South Korean citizenship. That can also happen. And of course, the third and the most important part is to help them integrate into society and to give them the tools of how to integrate, how to open a bank account, how to use a bank card how not to get scammed. So it can also apply for social benefits, educational programs, and for younger people, how they can go to university. And if they're younger, they will probably go to high school and 
for universities, there's also quotas for North Korean defectors. And the government is also, also has schemes that encourage smaller companies to employ North Korean um, defectors. So they can also be more easily integrated into the workforce because, um, for example, a big trouble that they face is that they have no knowledge of English. And South Korean, um, South Korean as a language has evolved to integrate a lot of foreign words that could derive from English. And another difference that people, especially uh, men face, North Korean men face, is that they're brought up in a very patriarchal society that is described as 50 years back in South Korean history. So I think I read an incident where there was a young boy who went to, I think, like primary school, and he was uh, getting his food at the canteen. And then when he was done with his food, he was like trying to give his plate to a girl. <laughs> and the teacher was like, why are you giving your food to a girl? And he said, my mom told me that I can't go into the kitchen because I'm a boy. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> You're like, well, <laughs> your teacher is telling you now that yeah. you are going to do that. Wow. Yeah. And so you were you were mentioning discrimination. Can you give us a sense of what how that manifests? So North Koreans sound very different mm. because the language have languages have evolved differently. North Koreans took mostly Russian loanwords and also their language is instructed to them to be a little bit more direct and a little bit more aggressive sounding mm. and more military sounding. Wow. Because that helps maintain a hierarchical system in society. Wow. And South Korean, especially the standard dialect, which derives from Seoul, is very like, soft and gentle sounding. So often North Koreans will be misunderstood when they say something because they might sound very rude. But these are just minor differences. Mostly South Koreans look down on North Koreans because they might be slower. They don't know how South Korean society works, even though they look South Korean. They're foreigners in a new country, basically. Discrimination is also deep-rooted in the fact that, and that for a long time, people were taught that communists are our enemies. And especially South Korean men are more likely to think this because they have to serve in the military for two to three years. And during those three years, they're taught that our principal enemy is the North Korean regime. But they don't necessarily say that it's the regime. They say North Koreans are your enemy. It's very hard to go against that. It is very systemic, but there are estimates that say that North Koreans are more likely to have depression, to suffer from anxiety, to commit suicide, to not be able to have um, a stable job because they have difficulty just adjusting because people will see them as different. It's almost like, oh, you're a North Korean worker and people will often just look down on them and say, oh, you're not, you're just not smart. Or you're just not capable. You're not a productive person. Mm. It's very unfortunate because none of these things are true. <laughs> to escape North Korea, you need to have a lot of capital that will go through a Chinese broker who will help smuggle them across the border into China and through China until they reach the border of Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, yeah, one of those countries. I think the cost is a few thousand dollars for the whole journey that can take a few weeks to a month. 
and that money can be either paid partially upfront or promised. And once the defector reaches South Korea, they will get resettlement funds from the South Korean government to help them actually pay the deposit for their first house, for their first apartment, to pay for whatever they need, a phone, you know, they don't have anything. But often when they come, the first thing is they have to pay off their debt to a Chinese broker that has helped them escape. And they will often work to get the rest of their family out. And this is also what makes it harder for them to integrate because they're busy working. They don't have time to socialize, to integrate, to learn how things work in South Korea. There are many cases of women facing sexual assault when they don't have the money to pay the brokers. Um, so it's a very dangerous thing that they have to go through and endure. And it's um, also one of the reasons that many North Korean women, when they come to South Korea, they will change their name because there are some women who were caught being um, cam girls in China for years and locked in like a apartment, being able to just perform for their clients, which turned out to be mostly South Korean men, ironically. And um, most of the people who escape from North Korea, about 80% are women, so they're at a much higher risk. Because of the kind of the, the gender uh, disparities or because they're subject to abuse? I think the biggest reason is that they don't have a role in the formal economy in North Korea. So it's also easier for them to maybe leave their role and to not be suspected of being missing. But also because they face much worse conditions <clears throat> living in North Korea. Because there is no definition of sexual harassment or sexual assault in North Korea, and that can then not be punished by law. There is a report from Human Rights Watch, I think it's from 2017, and it talks about how, for example, women who are working on the black markets will often be subjected to rape from government officials because they're unable to pay or because they've paid late or because they don't like you. And they have to endure that to make a living for their family, for their children. And in the military, women who women also have to serve in the military in North Korea. And there also, they will face those kinds of not just discrimination, but outright violence. And they have nowhere to report it to because they say, well, you're a woman, so deal with it. Do you have um, any stories that you heard either from these North Koreans that you met or from the people who carry out the Flash Rise for Freedom project that have just stuck with you? So the one person that really changed my life and that made me decide to work in this field is a North Korean defector called Chi Sung-ho. And I met him in 2016 in Oslo. So his story is that he was a 13-year-old boy from a really rural coal mining village. And because they were so poor, he... And his family would go to China, like sneak on a train that committed, that did legal trade. And they would go to China and steal some coal or steal some food and bring it back home. But because they were all malnourished and because, I mean, it's also really cold in North Korea. because <laughs> It's already like minus 15 in Seoul. So if you go to North Korea, it's going to be way colder, minus 20, maybe minus 30. And there was one night that he fell asleep and he fell off the train and he the train ran over his arm and his leg and because in north korea there is no public health care system the doctor just like sawed his arm <laughs> and his hand and like and his leg off 
And after that happened, actually, what made him really despair isn't that he was now a person with a physical disability, is that the government treated him differently because he was a cripple and because by being a cripple, he was bringing shame to the country. When actually it's the country that made him become crippled because they were forcing him to do this as a child and, you know, he... I mean, in any rational functioning country, he should be receiving government aid and the government should be, you know, like, I don't know, giving him some kind of apologetic gesture, you know? So that's when he decided to defect. And he came to South Korea, I think, in 2003 or 2004. And he's been working ever since to help um, young North Koreans learn more about democracy and also become their own advocate. And I think the most um, impressive feature about him is that because he was starting out this work and there was not a lot of funding, the first office he had was apparently in this like six-story building. And you have to remember, he's a guy <laughs> who has a prosthetic leg and he used to just like walk up the stairs every day <laughs> for years and years and years until I think HRF helped fundraise his first office that was on the second floor of a building with an elevator. Um, and just to see somebody who has suffered so much just become so dedicated to helping his own people and not giving up and not turning into resentment or hate or trying to erase his past or trying to lie about his past, that is the most courageous thing that a person who has gone through those kind of terrible events can do and he keeps on doing it and he's a man who really does it without any kind of like he doesn't want anything in return he doesn't want anybody to thank him he doesn't want anybody to say i don't know like you know you did a great job he just does it because he knows that that's right yeah thank you for sharing that story and that's how i took on this project first as an interpreter and then I was an event planner and then at some point I became the project manager so I'm really grateful to be in this job because it's a dream job it's a <laughs> as a, a kind of final question I'm wondering if you can tell our audience uh, if there are any ways that we can help flash eyes for freedom or, or other operations that are um, geared towards helping North Koreans? There's a lot of different uh, things you could do. So for flash drives of freedom, if you have any extra USB drives or SD cards, you can always send them to our address in The Hague or in New York. But if you're also interested in other organizations, for example, there's an organization called Link that helps um, rescue North Koreans that are stranded in China. They really do the on-ground work also of getting people out. And there are so many different organizations that are actually doing work. And there are more and more companies, actually, that are founded by North Koreans. Um, there's also a lady called Jessie Kim, who is based in Seoul. And she's the first North Korean to start her company that has received public investments. And she started her own business selling North Korean food. So it's also very important to empower people directly that come from that background because... I mean, I'm South Korean, my organization is American, and we do important work, but I think it's also so important to remember the people that are actually impacted by this problem. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for sitting down with us today. This was absolutely uh, 
phenomenal to hear about and, and thank you for your work and for your dedication. Yeah, thank you so much. Here are some stats. Flash Drives for Freedom has received over 100,000 drives. They estimate that they've reached over 1 million North Koreans with over 2 million hours of footage and over 50 million hours of reading material. That was all as of last January. If you ever find an old flash drive flying around in your room or in your drawer somewhere, you know where to send it. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.